0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, where we will be reading about the account of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. Now you may remember, Pastor Bailey did already preach through the entire Gospel of John, including this chapter. But as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. This passage has been on my mind a lot in the last couple months. And to quote Doug Wilson's blog this last week, again, John 4 again, if your sermon is dazzlingly original, it's probably either heretical or terrible or both. So I hope to stay on the straight and narrow with you this morning. But the best pre-sermon anecdote was this morning, actually. When we drive in to service, I always, for faith and courage, I ask the kids, whoever I have with me in the truck, to pray that God would bless the worship service. And Max normally has a, has a good one. So Seidel prayed that God would bless the worship service, and Max prayed Father God, I pray that we won't get in a wreck because Daddy is not buckled up. (laughs) Love it. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. I know it's a little longer passage. We're going to read 30 verses. So if you need to sit to take a break, that's fine. But hear this, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Joseph, being wearied from his journey, so Jesus, excuse me, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, "Give me a drink," for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, "'Go, call your husband and come here.' The woman answered and said, "'I have no husband.' Jesus said to her, "'You have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly.' The woman said to him, "'Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet.' Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city, And said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Note from the beginning here, there in verse 1, that Christ had made disciples. He was always making disciples. This was the work, to make disciples. And that is the work that He has commissioned us to do, the Great Commission. And that's the work that we're doing here this morning, right now. And as we go out from here, as Christians and in our families, this morning we're singing to God, we're sitting under the preaching of His Word, we are making disciples here on Sunday mornings. And we should be making disciples every other moment throughout the week. Because here's the thing. We are all being made disciples of something. We're going to be disciples. No question about it. But disciples of what? Or of who? Well, what does the word disciple mean? Any young folks? Disciple. Disciple. What does it mean? A disciple is one who learns, who is learning. A disciple is one who finds out, one who is receiving instruction. Now, from the time we're born, or even in the womb, depending on how ambitious dad and mom are, we're always learning. We're always being discipled. And there is never a time in our lives when we're not being discipled. We should be discipling and teaching all the time. With our children, we brought them into the world. It's our obligation to disciple, teach, for them to learn about the ways of God. Now that can seem a little overwhelming, right? It is overwhelming. Jess and I always smile when people ask us, you know, how do you do it with seven kids? I'm sure the other families here receive similar questions. How do you do you do it? How are you even alive? First, we can't fool you. It's always organized chaos. You can just ask grandma at the picnic or when you see her later. Grandpa and grandma here, they've got more of the dirty laundry, right? But we always smile and tell people well, it's not like God gave us seven children overnight. You know, first, God gives you one child. Unless you have twins first, I can't imagine. But God starts you with one, and you have no idea what you're doing. Talk about discipling a child, you have no idea. I mean, you're basically just at that stage yourself, just out of being discipled yourself. So whenever uh, new couples ask us about kids and everything, I always tell them, you have no idea what you're doing with your first kid, you're going to mess that one up just to encourage them along in their work, you know. But listen, we brought these children into the world, and it is our obligation to teach, to instruct, and discipline them. And it's no small task. These are all eternal souls here, everybody here, even the ones in the womb, eternal souls. Well, Paul, you're always preaching to dads and moms, you might tell me. Okay, fine. Every man, every woman here, You are constantly being discipled with what you are consuming, what you're learning, what you're watching, what you're reading. Constantly. We're consuming, we are being discipled with what we consume as we leave here. And it's not neutral territory. There's no DMZ, there's no demilitarized zone ever. If you are giving yourself to sin and lust with what you're watching and reading, no matter how much you lie to yourself, saying it's innocent or it's innocent enough, if your conscience is unsettled with the conversations you're having, which you know are wrong to be having, then you are taking ground for the enemy, and you're losing ground for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Again, it's hard work teaching and discipling kids. Anyone seen Fiddler on the Roof, the good old musical? It's what? It's about a three-hour movie. It took our family, I don't know, four, five, or six hours to get through it, I think. It's full of such incredible life lessons. We, we're having a hard time getting through a movie in one sitting now. You just got to stop, and you have to, you have to explain things to them, explain things about life. There's so much to teach. It's okay if you take time to read through books. Just make an effort to do it with your family. Make an effort to do it. We just started Lord of the Rings over again, and it took us two weeks to get through the first chapter. It takes time. But it's full of so much. And then Jessica will laugh at the parts that go over the kid's head, so that just encourages you on to keep moving. But my point is, it's okay to take your time, so long as you're teaching them, so long as we're discipling these young ones. You can't simply put on a movie and have a movie babysit your kid for you, let alone PBS or a Disney movie. If you think that way, that's okay, then I am very concerned for you. And we can talk later. I can give you details. So I get to listen to podcasts all day. I'm driving, delivering batteries. If you want good podcast recommendations, I'm happy to give them to you. Warhorn's putting out great stuff right now, our friends in Bloomington. But the point is, we have to think. So there are podcasts about modern movies that come out. It's not just enough for us to digest and consume the movies that we're watching. We have to, we have to be learning how we should think as Christians about them so that we can engage with the culture around us. Politics, downstream of culture culture downstream of religion, okay? So this culture around us is following our example, whether you believe it or not. We are being discipled from everything we're consuming. So verse 1 here again, Jesus is making disciples. He has made disciples. He's commissioned us and his disciples here to do the same. And that goes hand in hand with Jesus was making and... What else? Baptizing more disciples. Baptism. What a wonderful thing. A declaration to the watching world. This individual, this child, this man, this woman belongs to Jesus Christ, and I I want the world to know that. Now, our Pado baptist senior pastor is not here, but there are enough Pado baptists here, you can keep me honest. (laughs) I'm working however weakly and inefficiently, to disciple my kids. And at this point, my kids were not baptized as infants. At this point, there you know, some of the older ones between 8 and 10, they're asking about the Lord's Supper. They're asking about baptism. And this puts Jess and I in this tension right now. I'm smiling. It's like he's been through this before. And that tension is a good thing as they asked about as they ask about faith, because the kids will say, Well, I want to have the meal. I want to have the meal, the Lord's Supper, with y'all. Okay, well, you need to be a Christian. You need to be baptized. Well, I am a Christian, and I want to, I'll be baptized right now. Okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means you you do the right thing. Oh is that a Christian, someone who does the right thing? There are a lot of philanthropists with a lot of money who are Christians, then, yeah? And so my point is, you work, you work through these questions with your kids. Now, the Paedo-Baptists, of course, work through all the same questions as their as their kids come to the Lord's Supper and as they raise them to trust God. But as Pastor Max says. We must all, including our kids, must all close with Christ. Individually, we must close with Christ. On the day of judgment, everybody here will stand before Jesus Christ. Kids, young men, boys and girls, on the day of judgment, when you die and when you meet your maker on that day, Dad and mom will not be there to intercede for you. You will stand before the judge of all the earth. You will give an account for every deed you've done in the body. Your, quote, righteousness will not save you. If you do not plead the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then it will be eternal hell to pay for you, for you to pay. It's called the substitutionary atonement. You kids heard that? substitutionary atonement. God made you. He's holy, and yet you are a sinner. Your sin offends God. You deserve hell, but God is loving and forgiving. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins, to atone for them. Jesus died as a substitute. You and I should have suffered on that cross, And worse, hell. Jesus did not deserve death. We do deserve death. He was sinless. We are sinful. Substitutionary atonement. When he died on the cross, he took our sins on himself. And if you are a Christian, then you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When God the Father looks at you, if you're a Christian, he doesn't see all your sins. He sees the righteousness and obedience and the sacrifice of Christ. So that on the day of judgment and now, you can say to God, I don't deserve to go into your heaven because I'm a sinner. And yet, Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, he died in my place. I plead his righteousness. And he will say, enter into my rest. Discipleship, baptism. Baptism. Look at verse 4 with me. Notice that this this conversation, we're about ready to dive in. This all happens simply as Jesus passed through Samaria. It's a brief account. Just one little conversation. Of course, we don't have the whole conversation, probably. Just one little conversation between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. But many... Many sermons could be preached from this passage. In fact, I look back and Joseph preached three or four sermons from these 30 verses. It gives new meaning to the end of the Gospel of John. Anyone remember how the Gospel of John ends, the very last verse? And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And theologians for 2,000 years, we've been trying to fill it up, right? Christians, we've been trying to write, wrestle with these things. Let's turn to verse 6. Jesus was wearied from his journey. And it means to be wearied. That's about a wearied look right there. Jesus was tired. Oh, he was tired. Anybody tired here this morning? Anybody tired here about all the time? Let me tell you something. I've seen some of you here tired. But let's not bother with that. Let me tell you how I am sometimes when I'm tired. When we're tired, we justify some of our most base, carnal, and vile sins that you can imagine. Oh, I'm sorry about my temper right now. I'm just tired. Like that excuses it. Oh, I'm sorry about those really poor decisions I made last night. I'm just tired. I can't do my work. I'm tired. We really do make pathetic excuses, don't we? Well, in our passage, Jesus was tired. He was weary from his journey. But you can't really compare our 21st century tiredness. Of course, 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, he was also probably hungry from little to no food. I had a couple bowls of sweet cereal and some coffee this morning. Jesus was probably very hungry and tired. He was probably very stinky from traveling through the hot and unsanitary city on foot. He was poor. He didn't have a stallion to ride in on. He was probably aching in ways that you cannot imagine since there was no posturpedic bed and down pillow and cotton sheets to sleep on. No place for the Son of Man to rest his head. In other words, he was probably tired in a way that you and I truly have not quite felt before. And despite his great weariness, he loves this Samaritan woman. He takes the time. And I tell you what, to love people is some of the hardest and most exhausting work that you can do. I mean, we're all seemingly lovable people, but it is hard work to love people. We make it difficult. Jesus handles this situation, talking with this woman, with such wisdom and truth and love. He was tired and worn down, and this despised Samaritan woman, no one cared about her, Jesus loved her. What an example to us. There are several meetings in Scripture around a well. Rebecca met Isaac at a well. Rachel met Jacob at a well. Jethro's daughter met Moses at a well. All godly men. This woman seems to be in a poor and a sad state. I mean, she's struggling. I mean, she's working even just to get water. All we need to do is turn on a faucet to get water. And boy, do we act like it's the end of the world if that kitchen faucet's out. It's the end of the world. This woman is working hard just to get water. One of the most basic necessities of life. So is God cruel to her because she's suffering and working hard to get water? Absolutely not. God made it so that she had to do this hard work of going to draw water from this well at this time to meet her Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. So that she would come to repentance and faith in Him, which we read about and which we'll get into now. Often God uses some of the most difficult things in our lives to bring us to repentance and away from our sins. To greater faith in Him. Jesus truly loved this woman, and he shows us how to love. Notice he doesn't, when when we engage in this conversation, he does not go directly to, go call your husband. You wicked woman. You, You vile woman. I'm better than you. Some of us tend to be that way. And that kills our Christian witness when we're that way. Some of us are simply judgmental, and hypocritically so. Remember, they will know we are Christians by our our love for one another. Jesus simply says, the man you're with is not your husband. And then he lets her conscience do the rest of the work. He calls her out, and factually, but he's still gentle in how he says it. Still others of us are willing to talk about Jesus, the living water, and then to never be loving by saying something like, go call your husband and come here. Some of us more evangelical types. Because this is all, you read this, this is just mean of Jesus. It's cruel Jesus here. That's not nice. A lot of us fall there. We want to be thought of as nice. We want to be thought of as reasonable, sweet, kind. The guy who's just, oh, he's the nicest guy you ever met. I doubt that was ever said about Jesus. We want to be thought of as tolerant. But again, you see Jesus' love for this woman. He truly loved her. Give me a drink. You're thirsty. Let me tell you about living water. Oh, you want that water. Go call your husband. I have no husband, she says. Correct, you have had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. And you just love her classic, look at the birdie response. You kids ever heard that? Look at the birdie. You know, Gwenny's not in here, so I can pick on her. Gwenny, there were two cookies on the counter. Where'd the cookies go? Uh... uh, Look at that pretty bird outside. Let's look at the birdie. Let's read verses 15 and 16. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. Well, that's quite a non-sequitur, Jesus. That, That doesn't line up. That doesn't logically flow, but let's read on. She knew exactly what Jesus was getting at. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. And verse 18 has some very heavy and direct speech to her. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Truly. Then her classic, look at the birdie, verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then goes on to ask about worship. Actually, Matthew, Henry, I have always thought of this verse like that. Look at the birdie. Henry and Matthew, Henry and John Calvin both say that she is truly asking about worship. She perceives that this man is telling her something that she needs to hear. And so she actually asks, I want to worship God truly. I'm suddenly convicted of my sins talking with this man. Nevertheless, we are dishonest. When we're pinned down, boy, do we want to squirm away. Especially when we're called out on our sins. I have one son who would always sneak back downstairs after brushing his teeth. He took way too long down there. He's down there getting more treats and snacks. Babies are smart. They're a lot smarter than we give them credit for. They'll sneak to the outlet. Right after you did the no, because you don't want them to electrocute and kill themselves, you'll turn the corner and go around the door. What are they doing? They're crawling right back to their outlet. But they waited until you were out of eyesight. They're smart. Don't let them fool you. Some older kids, young men might, Halfway, run away all night, sneak back into the house. Conscience is alive, right? I shouldn't have done that. But all those examples, the kids and the older kids, that's more honest than we adults, because we adults are even less honest. One definition for being an adult is that you've lived so long And you've gotten so conniving and sneaky with sin that nobody knows your sin. And that's when you're in a bad state. If you're called out, you got caught sneaking, praise God. Praise God. That shows that God loves you. You wonder what was going through her mind when Jesus said this to her. Go call your husband. Well, what kind of response at the end does it lead her to do? And this is the point that I want to drive home as we finish this sermon. What does she say here at the end of this passage? Come, see the man who has told me all the things that I have done. All the things that I have done. That's what she says. To the people in the city. When you're sworn into a courtroom, what do you swear? I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. We spend so much of our lives judging other people's sins, judging other people's motives, etc., In large part, so that we are not thinking about all the things that I have done. It's a whole relative righteousness game that we set up, and we play it our whole lives. Kids do it, and so do adults. Some of you older sons and daughters, when dad and mom are disciplining you, or correcting you, getting on your case, if you're a teenager maybe, You might think to yourself, don't dad and mom, don't you have enough of your own problems? Why do you got to get on my case all the time? Well, if that's your response, did it ever occur to you that dad and mom are probably just preaching the same sermon to you that they need to preach to themselves or that they were preached to when they were your age or sermons that they needed to hear? Dad and mom love you. When this woman met Jesus, she barely knew God at all, it seems. And she barely knew herself. And after this brief exchange with Jesus, this Samaritan woman walks away knowing God very well and knowing herself very well. We get the joy and benefit of seeing her repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of her sins. And by the way, what lest they escape us, what were this woman's sins? Did she have theoretical sins? Or were they actual? Had all of the previous husbands died and she married five different men legally and with a good conscience and morally? Doubtful. I heard a song this last week I hadn't heard in a long time Stand By Your Man, Tammy Wynette. You should listen to it, but make sure you read the lyrics. You know who else had five husbands? Tammy Wynette. Wikipedia told me so. Stand By Your Man, that is one tragically sad song. And she sings it sad. It definitely does not describe a loving Christian marriage, I will tell you that, or Christian thinking about marriage and relationships. And that song, about 50 years ago, about a half century ago, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump away from the line of thinking, that line of thinking in the song, to the sexual insanity and anarchy that we have today. So 50 years ago, Tammy Wynette is singing about regrettably and sadly standing by your man. She is depressed. You know another hit song of her at that same time? Maybe around the time of her second husband? The song is D-I-V-O-R-C-E. She spells it out in her song. Tragic. Fast forward 30 years... From those songs, Stand By Your Man and Divorce. Fast forward 30 years to the Clintons. During some of President Bill Clinton's scandals, Hillary famously said, you might remember it, she famously said that she wasn't some little standing by my man like Tammy Wynette. But really, it's the same logic. The woman at the well... She was looking for love in all the wrong places. And how mean of Jesus to call her out on all that. Didn't Jesus know that you're not supposed to do that? Are you supposed to talk to anybody like this, let alone to a woman today? Didn't Jesus know about women's empowerment and feminism in 21st century America? I'm sorry, but feminism is not going to save you and it's not going to save us. It's doing the opposite. It's just another system based on relative righteousness. We do this. We're factories at this, of this. You can talk till you're blue in the face about how men are scum, men are evil. You might have a point. You might be right. But that does not get you any closer to the kingdom of heaven. It'll just make you sad. Men, women, we are all sinners with real sins that we really need to repent away from and we really need to turn to Jesus for and ask forgiveness for. Again, what I want to drive home as we close here soon, we spend so much of our lives comparing ourselves to others. It makes us unaware of our own sins, intentionally so. In the South, they say you can get away with just about anything so long as you end it with bless her heart. Did you see that hat that Annabelle was wearing this morning? Bless her heart. It's a relative righteousness game that the South sets up. We consume ourselves with identifying and calling out other people for their shortcomings, for their sins does that get you any closer to heaven? It does not. A dearly beloved pastor we know and his wife, she's reading a biography of Sarah Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' wife. believe Sarah Edwards. And this pastor's wife is saying, I'll just never be as godly as Sarah Edwards. What did the pastor say? husband tell her, he said, Well, honey, you don't need to be as holy as Sarah Edwards. You only need to be as holy as the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a wise and loving husband and pastor. Because that's what she needed to hear. Even if she had attained to Sarah Edwards holiness, what does that matter? We spend so much of our lives playing this relative righteousness game, Stop comparing yourselves to other people unless it's Jesus Christ. It makes no difference on the day of judgment. God is holy. He's perfectly holy. And you are a wicked sinner and so am I. Constantly comparing yourself to others or telling yourself, well, at least you're not as bad as other people. It doesn't matter. That's the pot calling the kettle black or it's the blind leading the blind. Apart from King Jesus, you're dead in your sins. So just repent of your sins. Stop wasting your time thinking about the sins of others. Turn in faith to Jesus, and you will find forgiveness and mercy in Him. He's good. As you leave from here, I want you to check yourself. The rest of today, the rest of this week, how many conversations will you have? Think about it where you're essentially saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. You're not going to heaven based on being a little better than them, or even being a lot better than them, or thinking that you are, when you're probably not. So that covers most of us. Some of you may not have the conversations, but you'll be thinking it. At least I'm not like them. But oh boy, we wish we could say that. We're proud. We might see some other people gossiping and playing this relative righteousness game, and now we can identify it. Oh, they're doing that relative righteousness thing that we just learned about. At least I'm not like them. We do the same thing. None of this gets us closer to the kingdom of God. You know what does prepare you for the kingdom? You are just like the woman at the well. You're just like her, and so am I. And your testimony at the end needs to be like hers. Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Not my friend not what he's done, not what my family's done, not what my coworkers have done. Forget all that. Let me tell you about all the things that I have done and Jesus Christ who saved me from those sins. That's what I'm going to answer for on the day of judgment. You will answer for all of the things you have done. Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is the Christ isn't it? I repent of my sins. My faith is in him alone for the forgiveness of my sins. I found the well of water springing up to eternal life. I will never thirst again. I found him. After her testimony, it was convincing. What happened? They came out of the city, and they were coming to him. They wanted to hear about it. They wanted to see him. They wanted their sins forgiven. That is the testimony that has spread the gospel of Jesus Christ all the way around the world so that we can have it here this morning. Let's believe in him and let's proclaim that good news to a world desperate to hear it. Let's pray.